1: Welcome back
0: to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the author of The New Arab Wars, Uprisings, and Anarchy in the Middle East. The author is Mark Lynch, and the publisher is Public Affairs. Uh, Mark Lynch, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have read the book. Uh, Such an interesting topic, and and I've really been looking forward to to talking to you about this. Uh, Before we get started, uh, why don't you tell us just a little bit about where you are now, but also where you were before, because I think both of those really do inform uh, the subject matter that you're writing about. So tell us just a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Well, you know, so I, and I teach political science, Middle East at uh, GW. Um, but I also direct something called the Project on Middle East Political Science, which is uh, a, kind of a national and now international network of scholars focusing on the region. And uh in, in that capacity, I, I just I interact with an awful lot of academics both uh here in the US and uh and over in the Middle East and in Europe. Um and w- there's been a pretty large scale collective uh, enterprise of trying to understand the Arab uprisings of two thousand eleven and their aftermath. And so I think a lot of the work that I do is, uh, is certainly, you know, it's my own take on this. But it's also informed by what I, I consider to be a genuinely uh, very robust uh, political science community collectively trying to deal with these really profound changes.
0: Now, you've written about the subject matter a lot, and including in the book length and, and this current book. Uh, follows uh, an earlier 2012 book. Uh, if I'm getting the sort of the titles right, the Arab Uprisings.
1: That's right. So, um, so the so the Arab Uprising, you know, that was a book that came out right at the at the heat of the moment. So I was really writing that extremely quickly back in the fall of 2011, and you know that was a time when uh, the passions were still very high. When you know it really seemed possible that you could have this enduring positive change in the region. And so I was trying to capture that, that sense of you know, the, what's really unique about this moment, how it's not just politics as usual. But the book also, it, it ended on a, a cautionary note and it pointed out that uh, you know, every previous episode of this kind of mass mobilization had ended up with more repressive uh, regional regimes. And so I was really trying to, at that moment, try and capture this idea that we could go in a number of different directions. No victories had yet been won, but it was still a, a, like a genuinely transformative moment. And then this book is written and we've gone all the way down that path of the, the dark side um, where basically everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And uh, so a big part of this book is trying to explain why it went down that path and not the more positive one.
0: Right. And, and it seems to me that the, in this latest book, uh, The New Arab Wars, you contend that the regional dimension of this this period needs much greater attention. Um, let's you know, even before we get to your that thesis, if if that's part of your thesis, um, correct me if I'm wrong. But before we get to that, how do you define this region? Um, what are its boundaries? What are in, in your mind? What are we really talking about here uh, during this during this time period?
1: Well, so. There's certainly a number of, uh, players from outside, uh, the Arab world that really matter. You know, so Turkey is very involved. Iran is very involved. Israel, the United States, Europe, you know, they're all involved. But I define the core of what I'm talking about as, as the Arab world. And, and the reason I do that is not just because of, you know, kind of scholarly decisions, but also because the uprisings themselves were, were really, truly an Arab phenomenon where The people involved, they understood it that way. There was this this region-wide discourse about change, and then a region-wide discourse about the violence that followed. And uh, and it's not just that it was conducted in the Arabic language, and it's not just that it was on shared media uh, like Al Jazeera and satellite television, but there's also there's a pretty profound identity dimension. I mean, basically, you might have something happening where you have protesters in the streets in in Greece or, or London or even in Iran or Turkey. And people in the Arab world would watch that and they would be interested in it. But it was very clearly something about them. But if it's happening in Yemen or happening in Tunisia, it's us. And it doesn't matter where you were in the Arab world. You understood it that way. And that, that was actually a very interesting and I think very important part of it that all of the stuff that unfolded was very clearly part of this single common uh, region-wide narrative, and it uh, was defined around what is the, really this new kind of pan-Arabism.
0: Now, much of what happens during this period can be traced in some ways back to Tunisia. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how these the, what started as relatively small protests at the outer reaches of the region uh, jumped to Libya and Egypt and Syria and elsewhere. What is the mechanism at work that, that ties this together?
1: Oh, it's a great question because, you know, at the time, most political scientists who were following Tunisia, they looked at it and they thought and they argued at the time that what, stayed in, what happened in Tunisia was probably going to stay in Tunisia because they saw it, the, those protests as rooted in the local conditions in Tunisia and they didn't see it as as, you know, replicable in these other environments. But what was interesting was that, you know, when it started happening in Tunisia and when it spread from the periphery of Tunisia to the capital city, it became the focus of regional media, both new social media and also uh, Al Jazeera, the satellite television station based in Qatar. And, and they framed it very much in this collective way that I was describing a moment ago. So, you know, if you were an Egyptian, you were watching Tunisia and you were certainly interested in what happened there but you were immediately drawing parallels to whether or not this could happen here. And uh, it, was, it was quite interesting to watch that unfold in real time. There was a tremendous amount of popular attention to what was happening in Tunisia. And and one of the things was that basically you saw protests happen uh, around the region. That was nothing new. I mean, they, people have been protesting in, in Egypt and, and Morocco and places for many years. But nobody ever won. I mean, the very idea that a ruler could be overthrown like this was just just seemed crazy. And when Ben Ali suddenly left and fled the country, it just absolutely shocked everybody. And they suddenly said, well, if it could happen there, why can't it happen here? And I think that was the diffusion mechanism. It was the identification with what was happening and then the application of that to, uh, to, the local, uh, to, to local conditions. Now, you refer to anarchy
0: in your title um is anarchy the political ideology of the protesters, or, or is anarchy the the outcome uh, of other forces and and quite unpredictable forces? Get us to sort of how how anarchy fits into this this story that you tell
1: yeah, by anarchy i did I didn't actually mean um uh, kind of either the international relations term uh you know from realist theory or that these were anarchists, so I just meant more this trying to capture this sense of things spinning wildly out of control that, uh, you know, there's a, you know, going against the idea that, uh, this was, uh, either some kind of centrally directed conspiracy or that it was under the control of anyone in particular. And, you know, so as you mentioned a moment ago, a big part of, of the book's argument is about the regional dimension of, of the, of the backlash against the uprisings. And I think it's very important that, uh, you saw these states in this highly competitive environment where they're all intervening, all interfering in, in other countries. And that's a real that's really trying to introduce the international relations aspect back into something which to this point has largely been studied in comparative politics terms.
0: Now, now, the role of the U.S. in this is is fraught with lots of internal conflicts and you know, especially with respect to Syria. Um, you've had the chance to get up close and personal with many of these policymakers. Um, how would you characterize their interests and, and their strategies? Uh, was there a consensus position? Um, and, and, you know, you, you offer some thoughts on this. Um, was was Obama's Syria policy a, a failure?
1: Well, there was no consensus on any of this. There, there, was, there were deep divisions going all the way back to the very beginning. I mean, Tunisia, everybody was pretty much on board. It's a good thing to have... Um, Democratic change in Tunisia, the stakes are fairly low for Washington. But over Egypt, there was an extremely uh, a conflict, conflict, uh, conflictual debate about what to do, because Hussein Mubarak was certainly uh, an autocratic figure, a dictator, everything else. But he was also America's closest friend in the region, and there were deep investments in, in that regime. And so, you know, when the uprising spread uh, very quickly after January 25th, you know, there's a huge debate about what the United States should do. um, And, you know, should we try and hold on to and preserve our our, our close ally, or should we actually try and and usher in some kind of democratic change? And there, I I think that ultimately, as in almost every one of these cases, it was Obama himself and a small group of people around him who I think won out in that debate. And, you know, so they, they clearly saw what was happening in Egypt as part of, uh, this possible, pretty, this possible democratization. I mean, they saw the old Arab order as fundamentally unsustainable. And so they saw this mostly as a positive thing. If you're in the Defense Department or the State Department, you see Mubarak as one of your major, uh, you know, instruments in the region. And uh, you're very worried about what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, you know, in Egypt, I don't think it mattered all that much what Obama or Hillary Clinton or anybody else thought because. By the time the U.S. got around to formulating a policy, there were millions of people in the streets, and the idea that Obama could have said, "Okay, everybody go home," was just—it's just ridiculous. And there's no way that the U.S. could have done much at that point um, to to tamp things down or to save Mubarak. Um, but I, but I still think, though, that the simple fact that Obama was willing to embrace the uh, the uprising in Egypt and to not just accept, but actually to really endorse this idea of, of uprising and change. Um, well, it was really, it's really quite extraordinary. I don't know that other presidents would have made that decision. Um, and it absolutely infuriated and terrified all the other leaders in the region because they could all see themselves in Mubarak's shoes. And suddenly they're wondering, you know, what's Obama going to say when the protesters are in my capital city? And whether you're in Riyadh or in Doha or in Amman, you're suddenly saying, now, wait a minute here. Um, and so you, that's, I think, actually the origin of a lot of this uh, quite profound divide that we now see between uh, between Obama and uh, many of the Arab leaders is that they saw him, in their view, abandoning Mubarak. And uh, that's something which they've just never quite forgiven.
0: Now, where do we stand now? You sort of have begun to allude to this a little bit. Um, is this still best understood as a as a regional conflict or or do the national context now now matter more to peaceful resolution of ongoing wars or or is really um hope for for peace not not part of the
1: conversation right now? You know it, 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 you have to look at that in a couple of different ways. So you know, at the the level of there being a unified, popular Arab consciousness now, That has largely faded. I mean, now you have a region which is really divided uh, and polarized uh, along a number of lines, sectarian, uh, religious, um, you know, between, you know, all these different competing strands. And so what started off as this uh, really uh, quite extraordinary moment of unity has now given way to really fierce polarization. So in that sense, uh, I would say that uh, that moment is gone. But at another level, um, if, if you begin from the states or from the regimes and not from the public, um, it's more inter. It's, it's there's more intervention and more interaction than than there's ever been. Uh, you've got uh, in a place like Syria, for example, you've got deep, intimate involvement with the insurgency by Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, Turkey, Iran. Uh, I mean, they're in there supporting local factions in Libya. You have the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, all supporting local factions. Um, and then you can go down the list in Yemen. There's a major Saudi led military campaign um, with a number of coalition partners. And so there's definitely a, a region wide uh, battlefield now, um, which is which is very different from this notion of a uh, of popular unity but it's still you know i don't think you can you can explain anything that happens in the region in any individual country right now without at least taking into account uh the the, the regional politics of it. it doesn't mean the regional politics explain everything i mean basically these these are intensifiers accelerants uh, retardants you know the, you you have different states supporting different networks um so I don't want to be read as saying that it's all regional and the, the the local doesn't matter at all. But I don't think the local is sufficient to explain outcomes anymore.
0: And I actually wanted to just ask that question. Maybe taking a slightly a step back, um, you are I I, I would say uh, more widely read than than most political science scientists. I think you your audience uh, stretches uh, to to more corners than that uh, your your typical uh professor and for that reason I suspect that you're probably read and and thought of um outside have you gotten responses um uh to this current book um is there a reaction uh in any uh, criticisms at all or or sure. or endorsement. what is what what kind of feedback do you get from those that are maybe involved in a, in a way that that might not be normally involved in a in a typical political science publication?
1: I, I would say that most people um, who are involved uh, in the region in regional politics, I would say most people like parts of the book and and intensely dislike other parts of it because I mean, it is a fairly opinionated book, as you saw. I mean, not in a not in a sense where i, I I'm not trying to be opinionated, but I am trying to adjudicate hotly contested uh, uh, domains and so on Syria for example I mean uh, my argument about Syria that is essentially that the militarization of the insurgency was a disastrous decision and that uh, the external support for the insurgency has had profoundly negative consequences and that cuts against uh, you know the by far the dominant opinion among the leadership of and leadership in many of the elites uh, in the Arab world for whom supporting the Syrian uh, opposition and Syrian insurgency is a really high priority and something which uh, they've really put a tremendous amount of both uh, material and emotional investment. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of criticism of of my argument uh, against intervention in Syria and uh, and against the arming of the opposition, um, and I would expect that. Um, And similarly, uh, you know, in a place like Egypt, um, where I place the blame for the failure of the Egyptian transition, not just on the Muslim Brotherhood, as is now popular, but on a much broader constellation of failures across the uh, across the board, including uh, from the liberal and secular parties. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of, again, you go country by country, you'll find people objecting to the narrative and argument. But to me, that's fine, because I think it's important to lay down a clear argument and then, listen carefully to the serious uh, to the serious objections i mean you mentioned the larger readership but i've also been it's it's not just that a lot of people read it it's that i've just been heavily involved in social media and the online space for a long time and i and what i've learned from doing this for over a decade is just that there's a tremendous number of really smart engaged people who you can learn an enormous amount from and you have to you have to have a thick skin and you have to be willing to accept, you know, a lot of abuse as well. But if you're able to separate out like the kind of the ignorant or the political or just like the nasty stuff, separate that out and focus in on the people that that have some have something constructed to say, you can get more like real time active feedback on what you do through Twitter, Facebook, uh, you know, short articles in the Washington Post monkey cage. You get this feedback in real time, and it really, I think, helps to sharpen the arguments. So you'll if people who read the book carefully and have been following me throughout, they'll see where my arguments change over time from when I wrote something maybe two years ago because I got really good and thoughtful feedback and criticism. And a lot of it I listen to and I say, nope, I'm not convinced. I still think I'm right. But other times I listen to it and I say, you know, that's a really good point And I have to take that into account. And so it's just a new type of scholarly engagement. Uh, an article I published uh, in Perspectives on Politics, uh, the title of it was called Political Science in Real Time. And I think that's a really important part of what we do now as a profession, or it should be a big part of what we do.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting point and And um, certainly the thick skin part is easier said than done. Um, but great advice. Nonetheless, I think that um, uh, getting that kind of feedback that that can happen almost instantaneously uh, can be so helpful to, people uh, to pushing to a project.
1: Ground. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've written something about Iraq or about Bahrain or whatever, and I'll get emails uh, from the people involved and they'll say, I read what you wrote. I think you're exactly right. But here's something you don't know. And these are things that you might not necessarily be able to quote, uh, but it certainly helps to enrich and inform uh, your opinions on these things.
0: Yeah. The the book, again, is The New Arab Wars, Uprisings and Anarchy in the Middle East, uh, published by um, Public Affairs this year. Mark Lynch is the author. Mark, thank
1: you so much for your time today. Hey, Thanks for having me on the show.
0: 18- plus.